So this morning, of course, I'm not going to be teaching where Drew has been in Acts, but I'm going to be teaching in John chapter 1. If you would turn there, um, I chose this passage because for those of you that were here a few weeks ago, you know, we're, we're doing the um, uh, What Matters series. You know, typically we teach expositorily through the Bible, but Shane wanted to kind of reset our church, if you will, just to get us focused after the year we had last year, you know, to kind of just hit the reset button and lay down some foundational, fundamental things that we hold as core for our church. So Shane started that first week with, um, uh, I just lost it, uh, the gospel matters. And then Pastor Teague followed that with uh, Leadership Matters. And then uh, Randy followed that with um, uh, Church Matters. And then I taught Prayer Matters. And last week, Shane did Mission Matters. And I hope that excited you. It really did me. And then uh, this week, Shane is doing um, uh, Worship Matters. And next week, the final one, well, actually, next week will be our guest speaker from the counseling conference, I think, Stuart Scott. And, uh, no, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I'm drawing blanks today, Keith Palmer. And if you've, that, you need to hear him. If He's a fireball, but uh, from Granbury, Texas. And then um, Shane will finish the What Matters series with uh, Stewardship Matters. So in all that to say that... Um, I, I, I taught on uh, prayer matters, as I said, and I taught out of John chapter 17 with the principles that Christ laid out in uh, his high priestly prayer to his father. And so with that, I had looked a lot at the gospel of John. And, and so I wanted to look at the, the, the prologue of the gospel of John, if you will, which is in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1. And and. I think a great title for this section, I'm taking a couple of seminary classes now through the Expositor Seminary that we have, and that's an advertisement, by the way, if you guys, I mean, it's it's better than I ever thought it could be, better, I mean, just really, really, really neat, so, you know, you can start looking at it to start classes in the fall, but in the New Testament class that I'm taking, one of the assignments we have to do is read the New Testament twice, but we have to come up with chapter titles for all of the chapters of, of the New Testament. And they can't be the ones that are in your Bible. <laughs> and you can't get some obscure Bible and, and use those. You've got to really think about it a little bit. So I think a great, you know, of course, the hard part is trying to figure out, well, in the Gospels, once we get into the epistles, it's not, that, not as hard. But the Gospels, there's so so much, you know, I mean, what do you do with just like even Matthew chapter one? You got the genealogies and, you know, and, and all these. How do you come up with one? Right. So for John chapter one, I, I, I like this one, the greatness of Christ. And, and I think that's just really laid out here. And, you know, it's rightly said of all the Gospels that um, that they they all teach Christ with a uh, distinctive emphasis. Right. And like Matthew emphasizes his kingship, Mark, his servanthood, which we went through that a year or so ago. Luke, his manhood and John, his godhood is a good way of saying that. And and certainly all of the Gospels intertwine those together and everything. But they're separate 
emphasis have allowed uh, unique functions in telling the story of Christ to a particular audience that that they would have been addressing. And John, is, he's unique in his powerful, powerful presentation of of Christ Jesus as the great creator of the universe. You know, and I, I'll say more about this later, I guess, but, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have any idea of this kind of stuff. You know, when when you start breaking it down and, and you really look at Jesus is the creator. I mean, that that's a big wow to me, right? I mean, that really strikes me. And his, his John gives us a massive vision of Christ that, really has been used countless times over the course of history to open the eyes of unbelievers to who Jesus is and the way of redemption. And oftentimes uh, in, a, in evangelizing, if you use evangelistic materials, a lot of times you'll see that, that the discipleship element on, on the backside of the evangelization typically is centered around the Gospel of John. I know one little booklet that I use a lot called Knowing Christ um, it's kind of a mini study of the first three chapters of John. It's kind of a kickstart for somebody that knows not much of the gospel. And um, that, that was true of me. That, that's what the Lord used in my life when he saved me was the gospel of John. And um, I, I think it's, um, the, the importance of it is because it shows the greatness of Christ, really magnifies that. So this gospel's uh, continuing effect on, on Christians is equally profound because John's account of believers, we find ourselves, and I mean, I think you would all testify this is true, that, that you find yourself expanding more and more in your knowledge and understanding of Christ the longer you're a Christian, right? And serious students of, of, of the Bible will, will find that each time that you go back to John, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Have you guys read Chronicles of Narnia? You know, you remember um, Lucy's experience with Aslan, which represents Christ, right? She, she gazed into his large face, and this correspondence took place. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger that is because you are older, little one. Not because, not because you are, or answered he, not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Is that the case with your Christian life? It certainly is for me. The more I learn about God, the bigger he gets. And, and I remember, you know, shame on me, but I remember when I was first saved and those, that first year in particular, I thought I knew it all. You know, I, I got this, you know. I was reading the Bible, I was devouring it, I was studying it, and I really thought that I knew it all. And, uh, you know, then I started to realize I don't even understand a speck, right, in this vast sea of, of bigness of God, if you will, and, and it really, it pushed me, you know. And then, I mean, I, I look at guys like John MacArthur, you know, that's been preaching, what, 45 years maybe, 50 years. And you know that man still studies 12 to 16 hours for a one-hour sermon? Don't, and he's a brilliant guy. Don't you think he could figure it out by now? But you can't, you know. God, this C.S. Lewis was right when he wrote this, you know, the 
longer we stare at God, the deeper we go with God, the bigger, the bigger, the bigger God actually gets, which really is a great benefit because the bigger God gets, and we understand that, what happens to us? Yeah, we get littler and littler and littler, and then we realize, woe is me, right? Now you understand how Isaiah felt when he saw Jesus sitting on that throne in Isaiah chapter 6, right? I mean, woe is me, you know? And that that's really the proper way to uh, to approach God is to realize that. Ed Welsh uh, wrote a book, When People Are Big, God Is Small. That, you know, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So the prologue here, verses 1 through 18, are considered to be one of the most beautiful, inspiring sections of all of Scripture. And a lot of theologians believe that the early church used this as a hymn of the incarnate word because Christ's incarnation is, is so poetic that they a lot of uh, scholars believe that this these first 18 verses were a hymn and Kent Hughes a commentator pastor commentator says as John begins this introductory song the force of what he says is so staggering that the words almost seem to bend under the weighty under the weight they are made to bear isn't that good they just that's how heavy they are so let's read verses 1 through 18 and, uh, and, and some of y'all that have known me for a while uh, know that verses 1 and 14 are memory verses. So I could call on some of y'all to see if uh, you remember those, but um, we won't do that. But if you're discipling somebody, verses 1 and 14 are great verses for, for people, for all of us to have memorized. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the, of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, so these opening three verses are just kind of a congealed expression of the greatness of God. He opens with, in the beginning was the Word. Do you remember the first time you heard that? I've got to open this door. Is it hot in here? A week or so ago it was cold in here. Let's start undressing in a minute. So, do y'all remember the first time you heard that? Um, in the beginning was the Word. What in the world? I thought, I remember when I learned that. I was like, what is, 
What does that mean? What it means is that there was never a time when Christ did not exist because the word was in the Greek is an imperfect tense, which means was continuing. All right. So, in fact, the entire first verse bears this sense. In the beginning was continuing the word and the word was continuing with God and the word was continually God. So hopefully there's no English teachers in here because helps me understand we could say this Jesus always was wasing does that make sense there never has been a time where Jesus wasn't wasing he always was wasing and that's precisely it Jesus Christ is the pre-existent he was is pre-existent always continuing now I can't get my mind around that that's one of those words that somebody needs to help me understand pre-existent what does that mean how can you exist before how can you pre-exist? How can you be before existence? Right? But that's what he was or is, right? Pre-existent. And um, that's like prehistoric. I don't get that one either. What is there before history? Nothing. You got to have something in order for it to be history. So I hear that on the news, you know, found this prehistoric animal or something like that. Well, it doesn't add up for me. A lot of words like that that I can't make sense of. Um, one of them is atheist. You ever think of that? What, what, what in the, this, this is a real side, the sidebar. I do a lot of sidebars. Uh, I didn't do them when I was preaching. Shane said, if it's not in your notes and you're behind the pulpit, don't, don't go there. But in Sunday school, <laughs> you, you hadn't thought that out well enough, don't do it. But this one, I mean, think of the word atheist. In the English language, when we put an A before a word, what's it do with the word that, that, uh, proceeds the A. It negates it, right? So for me to say or anybody to say, no, God, you must think there has to be in order to say that there's not. Does that make sense? You know, how can you say he isn't? You have to have some, you must think that it could be, you know, so I think an agnostic is just, you know, A, no knowledge. Uh, right, I can understand that one, but non-existent, you know, you must think there is. Anyway, the same thought of um, Jesus existing from all past uh, can be seen in Colossians 1.17. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, look what John writes next. So we say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And literally, that means the word was continually towards God. The Father and the Son were face to face. And the preposition with there bears the idea of nearness, along with, right? Um, So there's always been this deep quality, equality, intimate relationship within the Trinity, now John doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but that, that's all part of it, right? Part of the Trinity. And again, our, our, my mind anyway just staggers over this thought that Jesus is always having continued to be without beginning, without end, in perfect joyous intimacy with the Father. Now, we haven't always been there, but what? We will be from now on as believers, right? So... Then the, the final phrase of verse 1, John kind of brings the whole thing together, and he said, and the Word was God. 
Again, I remember the first times reading that in the beginning was the Word. What is the Word? It's capital. That must mean something. The Word was with God and then just seals it. The Word was God. So the exact meaning uh, is that the Word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, though he's a separate person from the Father. Uh, the, the phrase actually preserves Jesus' separate identity while also stating that he is God. And this was his continuing identity from, you know, it's not like they came up with the plan after the fact of sin. This is God in three persons from all pre-existence, right? He was constantly God. One commentator said this about this one verse. He says, the simple sentence of verse 1 is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. I mean, in that, that one verse that probably all of us have memorized it, it is the most theological statement in all of Scripture. He was always existing eternally as God, in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So, also, we see in verse 3, look at that, Jesus is the creator of the universe. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, again, all things were made through him. The fact, as I said earlier, you know, about Jesus being the creator is, is consistent with the entire New Testament. John's not the only one. Flip over to Colossians 1. We'll look at a few of these. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, uh, For by him all things were created, which is talking about Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, that's Colossians. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, uh, 2 and 3. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he, God the Father, created the world. So through Christ the world was created. Revelation 4, 11 Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You know, this, what I'm getting ready to read is, this has changed, it changes from time to time. That's because I guess scientists don't really know, but this will kind of put this creation thing in perspective. There are about, according to astronomers, there are about one billion stars in the average galaxy. Okay, so that means that how, how many people on Earth? Seven, seven uh, billion. So how many times does seven go into a hundred? I don't know, more than ten. Uh, so we can all have at least 10 stars named after us because we live in the Milky Way galaxy. But astronomers are also saying that there's, a, there's between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies 
in the universe. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, and they're saying now that there's, I mean, that's a pretty big gap, 100 billion to 200 billion. That's pretty big, so they really don't know. But go with the minimum, 100 billion galaxies. There's, there's 100 billion Milky Ways out there. Is that big? I mean, that's huge, right? Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of space, right? And that means that there are probably something like 10 octillion stars. Now, how many is that? I got it. One thousands, a thousand thousands equal a million. A thousand millions equal a billion. A thousand billions equal a trillion. A thousand trillions equal a quadrillion. A thousand quadrillions equal a quintillion. A thousand quintillions equals a sextillion. A thousand sextillions equal a septillion. And a thousand septillions equal an octillion. So ten octillion is ten with 27 zeros behind it. You know, Think of that number up there on the board. And Jesus created them all. Now, is he bigger than he was to you a minute ago? You know, I mean, and and this is now, think of that creation. Let there be light, boom. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he had to work really hard to make that, you know, octillion and, you know, this one. It all instantaneously, and what's the theological word that we use for Jesus or Jesus creating ex nihilo means out of nothing he did it all out of nothing you know we always say oh look what he created man that's really really nice wrong that's the wrong word for a human we can't create anything because we can't make anything without something you got to go to Home Depot or somewhere to get something right so we we can make things but we don't technically create anything right now that's the big side of it well not only is it the creator of the macrocosm of the universe but also the microcosm right the inner universe of the atom you know i can look out to space and get a little bit of an idea of how cool that is when you go out in the woods at night and see better than in the city right but i mean the 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 inner microcosm of an atom what in the world is i can't even begin to understand that and he created all of that as well I remember years ago, probably 20 years ago, I read this magazine, uh, Ranger Rick, is that right? <clears throat> and um, there was an article in there, and John Piper wrote something. I think it was Piper wrote the article, and, and uh, that there's a, I can't even remember now, but there's thousands of these diadems in a spoonful of pond water, a teaspoonful of ordinary pond water. Now, they went on to explain what a diadem is, and it's like if you look at one of those kaleidoscope things, you know, you know how cool that looks, and you rotate it, and all these colors just burst, and it's so there's a thousand of those in a teaspoon of pond water. Well, who observes that? You know, I mean, that's God created that, and he put it in there, so he must see it and get get joy from it. I, my mind goes with, well, cool, you know, when I'm in heaven, I can look down, and I will... In our glorified state, we'll see all those ponds on the earth looking like that, won't they? Now, that's not biblical. That's, that's timical. But, you know, could be there, right? 
You know, so the text, um, that verse in Colossians explains that he holds the atom in its inner and outer universe together. Because it says, in him all things hold together. Now, reading these verses in John and these other ones that we've looked at here, this destroys every other religion in the world, does it not? Because Jesus Christ, they say, well, they can't deny that he was here. Right. History shows that. Take Christianity completely out of the picture. History shows he's, he, he was here. Can't deny it. But he was just a great teacher. He was a prophet. No, he was creator. And if you don't believe that, then, you know, you don't believe that he's God. And then therefore, you know, no eternal life. Right. So this just scraps every other religion in the world. And, and it, what God is doing with this is he's showing us that we can trust him with everything because he's the creator. He knows what each of us need. Now, this is a really neat story. True story. A guy named Charles Steinmetz, mechanical genius and friend of Henry Ford, you know, the automobile manufacturer, that Steinmetz could build a motor in his mind, and if it broke down, he could fix it in his mind. He knew right where to go. He was that brilliant of a, of a guy. And so when he designed it, he, he, um, he built it with precision. And one day on the assembly line with uh, Ford, the plant broke down. And uh, none of Ford's guys could fix it. So he calls his buddy, uh, Charles Steinmetz, and he tinkered with it for a few minutes. He threw the switch, and this thing started running again. A few days later, Henry Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. And he wrote back to Steinmetz and said, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just tinkering? Steinmetz sent back a revised bill, tinkering $10, knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Yeah. And, and God knows how to where, when, and how to tinker with us because he made us. Steinmetz made that. He knew the intricacies of it, and, he, and that's how God operates in our lives. He's, he's our creator, and considering the greatness of Christ— when you think about it like that, nothing else in the world makes sense. So, question. All of us sitting here, I'm assuming, trust Jesus Christ for the substitutionary atonement of our sins. In other words, we trust him for our salvation. But many times, I, and I'm assuming you all as well, maybe it's just me, will walk out of here and something will come into my life and I don't trust him. Isn't that crazy? You know, I, I mean, that melts me to think that how can I trust God for the most important, important thing of all of life, my soul for eternity, and I start to doubt him in taking care of me, you know, providing for me, and, and all of those things. So that's a real challenge to me, to you know, to think so. You know, sometimes I think we take salvation too easily, you know, I mean, because you get what I'm saying with that? You know, um, so anxiety creeps in. Oh, yeah, I trust him for my soul, but, you know, I don't know where I'm going to get, you know, fill in the blank. But so next in verses 4 through 13, moving through the prologue, we see the greatness of his love and how apparent that is. um, Because at the opening line where he's, mystically, from my perspective, identified as the word. Uh, you know, we can say a lot about that in, in, in Greek literature, but the significance really is, is that Christ has always sought to reveal himself, and that's why he's called the, 
the word. Uh, a, a way you could interpret that is in the beginning was the communication, right? In the, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the communication. Ever since God, Christ, created mankind, he has sought to communicate with us. Think about that, right? The, that Christ always was the word should remind us of the way that he's loved us from the moment he created us. Um, because we express love by what? Our words, right? Think of your own lives, right? If you're married, you express your love to your spouse through words. Hopefully you do, right? Your verbal communication. You know, you in the counseling circles, this is kind of a joke that's thrown around, around a lot. You know, a woman says, well, you never tell me you love me. He says, well, I told you the day we got married, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, no, we need to be communicating. And because and, God does that, right? He doesn't just save us and leave us. He constantly communicates with us. So here in verses 4 through, 10, 4 through 13, the metaphor of uh, Christ as light stresses the revelation, the rejection and the reception of his love as it came into the world. So let's look first at the light revealed in verse 5. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's, there's ample spiritual evidence that, that Christ is light in a physical sense. You remember the uh, transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John reported that his face shined like the sun. Well, that's not the kind of light we're talking about here. The light we're talking about here is spiritual light, life giving light into a dark heart of man. And verse 9 reveals that all humanity benefits from it, from his light. It says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The, the thought of, of our Lord being spiritual light gives us a heartening insight and his loving attempt to bring mankind to salvation. Because where light goes, what happens? What happens to darkness? It dispels it, right? I mean, it can't. The T-tiniest little light dispels darkness. You know, if you've ever really been in a, a pitch black room, the strike of a match is incredibly bright, is it not? You know, and that's Jesus, the light of the world. Where light goes... Darkness is dispelled, which reveals the true nature of life. And verse 5 here says that the light shines in the darkness. That, that means literally shines continually. You know, meaning that there's never a time when Christ's light is not shining. It is bombarding the darkest recesses of our hearts all the time through uh, his work of the Spirit, maybe it's through nature, maybe it's through our conscience, maybe it's through the Scriptures, but there's never a time that that's not penetrating our darkened hearts. And when you meditate upon Christ being light, it helps us better understand his love. Um, because look, um, I mean, his, his loving light is either received or it's rejected. Sadly, what? The majority of mankind has rejected the light, and, and he unfolds that for us here. The light may, was met with tremendous resistance. Um, I will, uh, as you all know, we had a trip to Israel, and 
um, September, and uh, I was, I think I shared this with you when I got back, I was really, really taken aback by what the, the rejection of Christ with all the historical stuff that's there. In particular, the way the Jews, which, you know, were his chosen people, and, you know, John talked about here, his own received him not, um, the the steps that they are going through even today in 2018 to try and gain favor with God when John is telling us here that the light of Christ is is there penetrating and penetrating and um, I, I mean I was I was astounded by what I saw at the what we call the wailing wall of, of the works that they were going through to try and gain acceptance from the Lord and 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 there in Jerusalem, you're at this wailing wall, and I mean, you don't walk a hundred yards, and you come out, and you're over here at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where Golgotha and the tomb are. And inside of there, the the uh, Catholics are going crazy with um, worshiping idols. I mean, I'm talking about you're just. So you've got the Jews over here doing this, and you've got the Catholics over here doing this, and here I was, a Baptist, right, an evangelical, and I felt like I'm not doing enough. I, I, I Look at what these people are doing. Surely they're more acceptable to God than I am, and, and here we are basing on the understanding of Scripture that it's not me and what I do. It's His grace that has been bestowed upon me. And, and that makes it what? All about what I do? Nope. Makes it all about him and what he has done for me. So when we read verses like this, verse 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, as we've already said, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think of that. I mean, think of the magnitude of that. The one who said, let there be light, the one who, whose love constrained him to shine this light into the darkest recesses of our hearts, the one who mercifully laid his life down for us, and he was rejected by the vast majority of people. Yet today he still shines that light and is continuing to pry into the hearts of man. I, I, the only two words I can describe that with is amazing love. If I were God, I'd be done. You know, I mean, think about it. Just God gains nothing from us. He's not happier because we're, you know what I mean? I would, there goes the earth, look at it, you know. I mean, but his love, his amazing love keeps him from doing that for us. So, Today, you know, that light continues to shine. Mankind continues to reject. But, praise God, some respond. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who receive the light become children of God. That's an astonishing truth. And it's so astonishing that the same writer, John, the Apostle John, 
in 1 John 3, 1, I'll just read that for you. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You know, that, that ought to, that refrain should have deep impact on our lives, that we're children of God. Why? Because of what I did at the Wailing Wall or in the Holy Sepulcher? No, because of what he did. As he shined his light into my heart, he opened my heart. And that could be 15 more lessons for us to try and grapple with the responsibility of us responding to that gospel. But until the light's shining, it ain't happening. Just say it that way, right? We can't respond to God until he shines that light into our hearts. And and so this this idea of us being children of God, the work that he's done in our lives... I remember, and I know I've shared this with some of y'all, probably the whole class, but I just have to say it again because it fits here. Right around the time I was saved, there was another guy. I'll never forget this guy. His name was Larry Tate. I don't know if y'all ever knew Larry, know Larry. Um, He was a great big man, not heavy but tall. I mean, he'd almost have to bend over coming through that door. Big old country boy. When you'd shake his hand, it would I kid you not, his hand would come up to here on me. And we were saved about the same time, within probably a week or so of each other. And I would see him coming down the hall at church. And as soon as we would make eye contact, he just his head would go down, he'd start shaking, and he'd be crying. And I'd say, Larry, what's going on? And, and he would always say, I, I just can't get over what he's done for me. I just can't get over what he's done for me. And like I said at the beginning, I was so arrogant and thought I knew the Bible and all real quick like that and everything. And I had, I've, I've asked for forgiveness on these. But I've, I've had, I had thoughts of, well, man, you need to get over, with, get over it. Let's get on with it, you know. And but no, he had it right. He had it right. He remembered the work that God had done in his heart. And then um, um, Sue's husband John, he's he's that way. Get next time you see John Hartwell, get him to start talking about his salvation experience. I guarantee you, he'll cry, won't he, Sue? I mean, he knows what God did for him. And then he told me about this book of these Puritan writers. It's a devotional. And, and so I bought it. And it's like a different one each day. And I started reading it. And I thought, these guys were like that. Way back in the 1600s, you know. I need to reel myself back a little bit. I guess reel back is this way instead of that way. But you get the idea? You know, we need to remember where we come came from because... On top of that, John, that John continues with that statement, with his, his wonder statement of John, uh, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So an, over, an overwhelming joy at our future with God as his children should pervade our thoughts. And, you know, that... I mean, do y'all do y'all think much about eternity and what that's going to look like and what you know? I, I don't enough. I need to get more focused on that. But so the interesting thing here is that this comes with incredible simplicity. Look at verse twelve, uh, because becoming one of God's own comes by receiving Jesus. Verse twelve. But to all who did receive Him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What this means is believing on Jesus is and receiving him as your own. Not you receiving you receiving him as your own. 
There's no, nothing to join. There's nothing to sign. Just simply believe. Now, again, we could do 10 more lessons on what does it mean to believe. It's not praying a little prayer and saying, okay, now you're good to go. Right? If you unpack that Greek word and, and really get into what it means, it, it means that you believe that you've, you've basically you've disowned this life. You've been born anew, born again. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new person in Christ. You know, it's a complete fundamental shift of who you are. So, believing. Because, you know, we could all go to the outlet mall this afternoon and each interview 10 people. And they, being in the South, I would think the majority of them would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Does that mean they're saved? No. You know, so this belief means more than just the English understanding of that. I'm... Uh, not taking any of the languages in seminary classes, um, but some of the guys in one of my classes are, and that one of them was studying some Hebrew the other day when I was there. I was looking at his notes, and you know, and 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 the word sin. There was like fifteen different words in Hebrew for the word sin. Same thing in the Greek. Well, we just got sin in here. Well, that's what you can do with a lot of these English words, like the word believe. That's you know, English does a horrible job of really bringing understanding to the Greek. So, you know, if you like word studying, you know, I, you know, that'd be a great exercise to do is to look at what believe really means. So in kind of closing in these last verses, uh, he shows us the greatness of Christ's grace. Thank goodness, you know, for the grace, right? And so um, let's read verses 14, 16, and 17 because there's a parenthetical reference to John the Baptist that doesn't necessarily apply to that. But verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, John explains that when Jesus became flesh and he dwelt literally with us, does anybody remember the old King James dwelt among us words? I love that one. He tabernacled among us. It means he pitched his tent with us, right? In the midst of humanity, Jesus came and pitched his tent. He pitched it in human skin, right? And, And with that, people saw his glory, and he characterized that as full of grace and truth. Uh, John says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, again, literally the Greek says grace instead of grace. What? That doesn't make any sense, right? That sounds kind of weird. So what did John mean? And here's what he meant. Uh, as the grace you receive is appropriated and allowed to work in your life, more grace will come. And then more grace, and then even more grace. So some translations help us. They they read grace following grace, or grace, I like this one, grace heaped upon grace. And that, you know, attempting to convey the idea that grace continues to overflow. Martin Luther said this, listen to this quote. The sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It retains light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine ten more worlds. I suppose that a hundred thousand candles can be ignited from one light, and still this light would not lose any of its brilliance. 
This thus Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would not lose as much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. Isn't that good? So for those without grace, it's readily available. Paul said in Romans 5.20, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So there's more than enough grace to cover our sins and the sins of the world, one blessing after another. So now we have grace heaped upon grace, and tomorrow as we continue to walk with him, he'll heap more grace upon us. And John concludes the prologue here with verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So Jesus is the explanation of God the Father. The explanation. What's the fancy word we use for explanation? It's, it's exegesis, right? And that's really, really important that Jesus is the explanation, the exegesis of God, the drawing out of God. He's not the opposite of that, which so many Christians try and do, which is dead wrong, eisegesis, which is putting my ideas in. That's not what it is. You know, in, like in AA, it's a God of your own understanding. Wrong. I don't care what your understanding is. That ain't God. Right. The, the drawing out of who God is, according to the scriptures, is who he is, not who I think he might be. So the greatness of Christ explains the greatness of the father. You know, and we just need to do. Uh, remember, as Aslan said to Lucy, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Right. So that's the prologue to John's gospel. So um, any final comments you all may have or?